Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. Detroit is different, back in full effect. You know how we deliver things here. Um, a special guest today, somebody that uh, supported what we do with a lot of studio, more so with an initiative and giving me some game on like, hey, connect to this, connect to this, connect to this, connect to this. So regional chamber, and as he just said, the man that's gone to 500 plus <laughs> bars, restaurants in and around Detroit, which is like, wow, it's that many. Some of them aren't here anymore. Some of them are coming back. But Devin O'Reilly, how are you today? Great to be here, Kari. Appreciate the intro. The list will forever be growing, but we've, <laughs> we've lost some. We'll talk about it. But I'm always looking for new places to check out. You know, any type of restaurant, small business, cafe, that's what I'm all about. It's one of those things where I do it professionally because if someone said, you know, don't worry about money anymore. You can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You know what I would do? I would go to I would go to restaurants and cafes and bars and I'd hang out and I'd talk to business owners and I'd find out their stories. So it's one of those passion things where I love to do it and I get to do it for work as well. So it's like an Anthony Bourdain, but <laughs> of the D. Rest in peace, Anthony Bourdain. Uh, lay a hell of a legacy with that work, but also friends with our podcast friends. Uh, uh, we think of Daily Detroit. Uh, Jeremiah has like really like been instrumental in so much. I, I should have been got him on here. I already know he's going to be text messaging me like, ah, you got the team on before me. You're coming on soon too, sir. Yeah, we're, get, we're getting soon. we're getting Jer. Shout out to Jer and Daily Detroit. <laughs> I do a lot of stuff for them. The Friday episodes, mm-hmm. I'm, all, I'm uh, often on there talking about the places I've been, what's up in not only bars and restaurants in Detroit, but what's up in development, what's up in mm-hmm. kind of goings on in the city. Uh, a lot of the you know the political stuff, the economic development stuff. We get into that uh, on Daily Detroit, and again, that's that's my wheelhouse. That's what I love to talk about and love to learn about. So uh, one of the things that connected us was we and Detroit is different uh, with our a lot of studio project. We were award recipients. It's a real cool grant, the Neighborhood Grant, and that was our for profit. Detroit is different. So it's a for profit grant that comes out right now. The time is over for now, but guess what? Next year, you will get the opportunity, and I believe as this project grows, it's going to be more awardees, it's going to be bigger opportunities, but you want to connect to this, whether you're nonprofit or you're for-profit, just as granting opportunity. The Neighborhood Grant, uh, we were a part of it, along with a lot of other projects. Uh, it connected us uh, in many different ways, it, just many of the business owners, uh, organizational leaders, and vision to be like, hey, get out here, get some equipment, and get going with what you want to do. But as much as that's something big, the chamber, development, small business, so much to talk about. Let's start with your Detroit story. What connects you to the city in the first place? Okay. I'd I love, love to start there. Start at the beginning. That's how I always start my yep. podcast with people. Is start at the beginning. So uh, I was born in the uh, born in Detroit, Sinai Grace Hospital. Wow. Shout out to Sinai, <laughs> Sinai there Grace. There we go. There we go. Uh, grew up uh, at various parts in Dearborn, actually. Very mm-hmm. close uh, for a while, for much of my uh Growing up life, I lived right on uh, Tireman and Hartwell, which is like right near in the aviation sub. Mm -hmm. So literally kind of a few blocks from kind of the Dearborn-Detroit border. Mm -hmm. That's important because it was a very diverse upbringing, a lot of different cultures. I mean, not only do you have black and white, but you had, you know, the Middle Eastern culture was really growing in Dearborn at the time. So, um, you know, I just kind of grew up having friends from kind of all over the place, really. Um, And then we moved over to the west side of Dearborn. 
uh, off of uh, Michigan Avenue area near like near like uh, Greenfield Village and that area. And then I kind of did you go to Fortson? I didn't go to Fortson. You know what? It's 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 funny. We moved right around the time I was going to high school. I went to Henry Ford Academy, mm. which is the school inside of Greenfield Village. There's mm. a school inside the museum in Greenfield Village. So I went to school there. It's a charter school. Okay, so that already is so many questions is going to school. It's <laughs> like, wow, you know what I'm saying? There go to President Carr, mm-hmm. and I'm having lunch hour. You know what I'm saying? It was it was wild because not only that, they basically like deputize you to be uh, able to share information. So if someone stops you and's like, oh, you got a badge in the blue polo, you go to school here, uh, you know, can you tell me where this is? Or can you tell me more about, you know, the Lincoln chair? You got to know about that stuff. Mm-hmm. So like you basically become like a mini uh, curator of the museum because you're supposed to represent the museum. So it was really interesting. And we had classes in the museum and then we had classes like as a campus, like down by like the riverboats and stuff. So it was pretty wild going to school there and it was a charter school. So it's a total lottery. Mm-hmm. It wasn't merit based it was just totally lottery charter school so again we had people going there from all over the metro detroit area mm-hmm. okay and, and also just the culture of that for a lot of people that haven't been there like you'd be surprised how you know you live in the city and you don't go to the motown museum or the henry ford museum it's like you don't even think about this till somebody from out of town comes and it's like oh can we go to some museums and you'd be like damn i'll never go to museums here but the henry ford museum is a very it's a rich piece of American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, if you're interested in cars and 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 so many things, like they have like the idea of what they thought a house would look like yeah. in the 21st century. Dimaxian house, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like all types of stuff. I, I think probably like we're around the same age, so the Rosa Parks exhibit probably went came into the installation there uh, while you were attending. Uh, it's a lot of rich history. In that exhibit, and it's a very big museum. It's one of those museums that you really could spend hours just going through, reading, interacting, and it's interactive too. Like you can touch stuff, but yeah, you know, people uh, spend people spend days there. Yeah, it's easy to it's easy to, and so for that, as Detroiters, check that museum out because it's here, and go to the Motown Museum when it when it opens, and the DIA. It's some it's some rich pieces in and around and collections that you'd be surprised to fall upon. My favorite museum is Dabo's Museum, which uh, the one. African V Museum is is on. Um, so it's at the intersection of Dexter, Grand River, and uh, man, my mind like kind of like Dexter, Grand River, ninety six. Um, okay. Like right in that intersection, sort of like that three way intersection, yeah. and I, I thought it was just like a, a collection of things, but when Dabble curates it, he actually brings it to life, and it's it's unique. It's like it's a it's a story of how I guess steel. Uh, plastics, water, and these elements all come together. Like, you know, you have to go on it with him. Because yeah. now you're going to be like, okay, this stuff kind of looks cool and Heidelbergish, but what's going on here? You know, and he will tell the whole story. Wow. You so, know. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that to, to the point I'm kind of getting to and is there is so much interesting stuff around here. And mm-hmm. so I saw that, you know, in high school and whatnot. And, Going into college, there was a lot of people who were going away to school. A lot of people were sticking around. Some people weren't going to college at all. Um, so I ended up sticking around, and I went to U of M Dearborn. Okay. Um, I just felt like, uh, you know, I liked I liked where I was at. Um, and I know, you know, it would have been interesting to go away somewhere far away, but I really liked what was going on where I was at, and I wanted to kind of dig into that. So I went to U of M Dearborn for uh, for college, and I studied business and marketing. I wanted to go into sports marketing. Huh. I wanted, I thought I was going to be 
the, I thought I was going to be like the vice president of marketing or maybe the general manager for like the Pistons or the okay. Lakers one day or something like that because I was huge okay. into basketball. So I thought I was going to be like in sports. Mm-hmm. And I remember one day someone – I was talking to somebody in the school and they are like, you know, clearly you have a passion for this and you like sports. But let me tell you something. The – the marketing director of University of Michigan or of the Detroit Pistons, they still had to go to the same school and learn the same things as the marketing director for Budweiser or McDonald's. Don't focus just on sports. Think about you know the whole industry as a whole and what you can do there and, and where your interests are. And so I kind of moved out of the sports side of things and said, hey, sports is still fun, mm-hmm. uh, but I could open my horizons up and I could do anything. So it kind of got me out of just the, the sports track, although I did have some fun internships at the Lions mm-hmm. and with the Pistons uh, back in the day when I was in college. That was Those were fun. Oh, yeah. Marketing the Detroit Lions is definitely a very interactive <laughs> job. It's, I can only imagine, uh, you know, selling those ticket packages of like, hey, you want to come to see the other team? I'm just well, I don't, I don't want to. I mean, I don't want to date myself, but I will. But let's just say Joey Harrington was a quarterback, so you know, it wasn't Joey days. It was lean, lean times. Man. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, and and it's interesting just the way pop culture intersects and does impact. Like, you know, I, my my my, I guess formal education is in marketing too from Walsh, so. You know, you learn these different things and how they intersect marketing, you know, publicity, public relations, advertising. And and that's I, all. And once you, you know. learn those, once you have that, it's all the same. And that's mm. what I wasn't getting at first. It was like, oh, I got to do this specific. What, you know, what do I need to learn to be the sports director? And it's like, mm. no, 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 you can't, you can't think like that. Mm-hmm. What do you need to be? What, what tools do you need? What foundational knowledge do you need to be, you know, again, a a a business leader, someone who has a lot of knowledge in uh, business and creating a business and operating a business and selling and marketing, and you have some of that naturally. You know, you you know you do. Um, so you have some of that naturally, and that's about developing that. And then you could go be the marketing director for Pepsi or you can be the marketing director for the Red Wings. It doesn't really matter because you have that foundational knowledge and you have those skills. You have that toolbox. So that's where I needed to break out a little bit and kind of open my horizons. Which which leads me to uh, it, it's sexy because you know between it, it's us it's the marketing people that come up with a lot of this jargon that usually confuses people and it's repackaging the same stuff because at the root of it it's now I like that more people are leaning into it's storytelling but mm-hmm. it's all storytelling but it's how you package it and how people receive it and then any good storyteller also knows like who's our audience and then what responses you know how will it touch uh, you know hearts and minds and everything like that. So with that, one of the most unique stories that has shifted, and it's definitely very, uh, especially in the Detroit is different airwaves and everything. Like it's a, it, it, it's challenging because like it, it falls along the lines of race opportunity, but this narrative changing of Detroit, because Detroit's narrative in our lifetime, really like when we think like really 2000 on has taken on such a metamorphosis of what is here and how it's here, and even just the ingenuity of the people that are here and how that interfaces. So then, you know, you open up uh, travel magazines and it's like, Detroit's a top-tier destination to go to. And then it's like content that, like, you or I will make. And and it's like, oh, check this out, check that out. But it's more to the story. What do you think is, uh, to, to you, just as a marketing person, not the political side, 
what are some of the things that you think started really shifting some of the Detroit narrative um, to the world? Well, nationally first and then to the world. I mean, this is a I mean, this is a conversation I love to have on a topic because there's so many nuances to kind mm-hmm. of this revitalization of Detroit. And even, you know, no matter who you when, when you say that to somebody, that means different things to different people. Yes. And some people would say there isn't a revitalization. Some mm-hmm. people say that there is. Um, I think no doubt things have changed. We can say that since mm-hmm. 2000. Um, I think that a few things happened. I think. And I'll try and I'll try and be as concise as possible on this because obviously there's a lot that happened. But we, you know, we we pulled the Super Bowl in, we pulled the baseball All Star game, we pulled some events, Final Four. In, some major events to come come here. And I always tell people we really we really weren't ready. If you think about like 2006 and the Super Bowl, I always think like, oh my gosh, people came here in 2006 to downtown and they thought this was like Detroit is you know Detroit is back mm-hmm. to this you know this iconic city and everything. You're like man. 2006 seems like forever ago. We were yeah. still bored. We were still putting fake building wraps to pretend like they were businesses downtown when it was all still vacant. Yeah. Like we were not ready for that stuff. But it, at least it got people thinking about Detroit. And then what happened is you had private investment come in. You had some places, some cool places open up and say cool with quotation marks if you're if you're not seeing this mm-hmm. um, because that's that's all relative. And I think it became a sense where if a few we get Slows. Slows is a great example. Yep. Slows Barbecue opens, and it's a place. It's a destination. Corktown is still gritty at that point. Uh, there's still not a lot of development happening there. But you get Slows, and they make really good barbecue, and people start coming there. And people start coming there. It becomes a destination. And then a, you know, a bar opens up, and then a coffee shop opens up. And slowly, kind of Corktown uh, becomes more developed uh, with small businesses and people coming there. And I think, you know, Corktown probably was really the original uh, kind of area that developed mm-hmm. and it got eyes on people, it got, got people's eyes on Detroit as far as like the little engine that could. You had some of these entrepreneurial spaces. Tech Town opened up. You had Pony Ride mm-hmm. um, back in the day where, you know, Phil Cooley had all these, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and makers come to this one space and you could see that. And so the narrative started being like, Detroit is this really gritty place where it's still really cheap to live. Um, it's still, you know, there's still ruins. You know, people talk about like the ruin porn. People would mm. come look at all, you know, traipse around through the vacant buildings. And so it did become this, um, I don't know, Kari, I don't know how to say it. It's like it was coming back, but like it still wasn't for most people. You know what I mean? Mm. And, it, and it took... And this is where it gets into a very nuanced conversation. Is yeah, it, it of, took that of the people that were yeah, here who was doing this, and then white people with access, money were yeah, opening yeah. up places because mm-hmm. the white people with money had the ability to just point to a building and say, "I want to buy that and mm-hmm. put a cool restaurant in there." Yep. And there is something to be said where that's a positive mm-hmm. because it does spur some economic development. Maybe it spurs some jobs. Maybe it spurs some more people to start thinking about this area. But at the same time, it doesn't. It, it, the same opportunities aren't available yet for Detroiters. We're talking like you know in mid two thousands. The same opportunities are not at all available to Detroiters mm. who have lived here and who say, "Yeah, I'd love to buy this building that's vacant uh, on Livernoy, but how how the heck am I going to buy it? I don't have any financing. There's no banks. There's no banks within a mile of me to go get uh, to financing. So there still was a very kind of have and have not situation where the development that was was able to happen in the mid 2000s was only really able to happen by certain classes or races depending on how you look at it of people 
but it did do something. It, it mm-hmm. did start to pull some pull some people down. Then you had CompuWare open up. You had Dan Gilbert bring you know whatever you want to say about him. Dan Gilbert bringing Quicken headquarters downtown was an absolute you know spark, mm-hmm. uh, you know a match in the a match in the fire um, to get things started. And that brought people working downtown. And once mm-hmm. you had thousands of people working downtown. You know that was the that was the nucleus. Then you needed restaurants. You needed places for them to go, for them to stop after work and before work and all that. So that kind of really was the big bang of the downtown development. It really was quick and coming downtown because after all, it's jobs. When you bring jobs downtown, when you, people have to work downtown, work in an area, you're going to spur economic development. So that's kind of the short version, and then you know it kind of all grew from there. But we're still talking about we're still having this conversation. Access, the equal opportunity yeah. because the nuances. As people would say, it's like Dan Gilbert and some of the other uh, more lucrative and not necessarily people, but more so business and mm-hmm. entities. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned CompuWare, Peter Carmanos. Uh, they were given access to 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 deals that a lot of you know people that have been here. Uh, you know, the the Don Bartons, the the uh, Herb Strathers, the you know, like the black business. I guess we, we would say like uh, elites. I guess that. That it's like, hey, I was never given this this Marvin Beatty. It's like I never was given these opportunities. You know what I'm saying? So arguments definitely made, especially along race, because race is such a big elephant in the room of everything Detroit based and centered. Um, but even through all of this comes, you know, uh, other like you, you know, it, it's the opportunity cost as, as one choice is made. Other choices are foregone, but then even from those foregone choices, it creates other synergies around what could happen. Because mm-hmm. Phil Cooley, and you mentioned slows, like Phil, I consider, you know, I, I've, I've worked with Phil before. Phil has uh, supported Detroit is Different, like, you know, early on in like the origination of Detroit. He was one of the first Detroit is Different guests, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So it's it's a it's a unique lens of like how to look at this and, and you're right like right and wrong it becomes tough and then depending upon your vantage point and your bias biases you know it's tough because you know it, 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 it but i do think that there are some competitive advantages depending upon where you're working out of and how you look at things but it's very tough to just completely look at like certain projects and say you know, I want to be in those shoes because the background of those shoes takes, you know, do you have the capacity to do that? Right, exactly. And, and in the last, you know, five, six, seven years, we started throwing around the word gentrification a lot. Oh, yeah. And I think people use it now without even really thinking about what it actually means. You know, they use it as kind of a catch-all term. And I, you know, have a lot of conversations about this as far as like, you know, it's used as a four-letter word oftentimes. Um but at the end of the day, we have to think about what it really means, and that's that, that property values are rising, tax base is rising. There are positives to what gentrification can do, and people don't like the word. When you say it, it sounds like it's a bad thing. Um, but there are positives to what happens there. But most people would tell you, and I've talked with economic developers, uh, urbanists from around the country, we're, Detroit is still not experiencing true gentrification. Not like you've seen in Austin, I mean, not like Brooklyn, a Harlem and, and, and yeah. certain other places. True, even Miami. Yeah, it, 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 because we're it's the displacement of the people that were there. Because that's really what it becomes. It's mm-hmm. like it becomes like uh, what's that term? Urban pioneer, as mm-hmm. if 
nobody ever lived here and like it's just like some free landscape to just do whatever you want to do mm-hmm. and it's like okay that negates the fact of the people that live in East Pole Town that mm-hmm. live in Brightmore that live in these communities that they'll look at you know due to a lot of other reasons and then that's the other like elephant in the room when we think of Quicken Loans is that Quicken Loans played a big party in the uh, in the collapse mm-hmm. of you know yeah. the, the the home crises mm-hmm. in 2008 with a lot of the um, subprime uh, mortgages and were bailed out whereas a lot of owners and not just in Detroit the whole region so we're looking at like even Detroit Dearborn Warren um you know this was just due to the automotive industry you know it was so many homeowners in this southeast Michigan region when you look at the 90s and the 2000s it was just so commonplace Mm -hmm. that immediately shifts as a lot of people were refinancing and lost their homes as what do they say? Hawking their house, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Taking money off their house and ending up in a predatory loan and And just and, walk away then. You just and walk, walk away. away. So, you know, you now end up with these uh desolate spaces throughout southeast Michigan where it's like, oh, we can do whatever. But the 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 what got us here, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's many places in Florida that were like this too. Uh it, it, it you know, we can't shake out of. So this is where I, I'm kind of kind of turn this turn this to a question to you and kind of your opinion on it. Mm-hmm. So well, I think we are experiencing or we are seeing is kind of a sort of a micro gentrification. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know if you talk to somebody and you say gentrification means that uh, a place becomes uh, unaffordable and pushes people yeah. out to live there, that's not happening in Detroit because there are is still tons and tons of affordable homes, affordable neighborhoods in the city of Detroit. What is happening is certain areas of Detroit, Definitely. particularly downtown, Midtown, Corktown, you know, even uh, you know Palmer, Palmer Woods, and uh, Detroit Golf Club, those are becoming very expensive. Um, I would argue, though, in the, in the case of a downtown, downtowns are supposed to be expensive. You know, any downtown in in, in the world, even in America. It's, it's more expensive to live downtown. If yeah. you want to live in downtown Chicago, downtown Minneapolis, mm-hmm. downtown Boston, it's expensive. And it, so there's, a, there's an argument to be made that, well, you it should be expensive to live downtown mm-hmm. or in like these really desirable neighborhoods. And so that's kind of a trend everywhere. The question is, so there's a lot of affordable housing still available in Detroit. But like you said, there's large swaths of the city that – have been, you know, blighted, you know, people walking yeah, away from my, houses. My, my neighborhood. Like, Decades. I mean, you drive down my street right now, and it's, mm-hmm. it's weird because we go back and forth with the, the house on my corner. So, like, people come. This is this is in a house, <laughs> the studio, because a lot of people are always like, damn, is the studio's here? It, you know, but my my the, the house on my corner right now, um, you know, uh, it's a house on my corner where it keeps – being broken into and, and scrapped for different resources, even though we've paid to like lock it, you know, it's like different ways of like trying to figure out how to lock from the inside. But people obviously, you know, it's, it's one of those weird things. It's like the contractor you pay to lock the house from the inside. Usually sometimes it's the contractor that comes back and it's like, man, they got a, uh, <laughs> they got a, uh, I'm going to need some of these supplies. You know what I'm saying? So now you hit the corner, you come to Detroit is different and you're like, wow, what is going on over here? You know, you can, you can easily shoot, I guess. Um, I don't know if most people have saw it, but, uh, it, it, and I, I like horror movies, but the Barbarian horror movie that came out. I heard about this. And uh, it, it's based in Brightmore. And people are like, wow, is this real? Is this not? And it's like, okay. It, the premise and everything is 
it's an interesting premise. And it's actually, as a horror fan, I think it adds a new arc into what will happen in horror genres in the future. But uh, as a Detroiter, you, if you like horror, check it out. Check it out. But it's it's interesting because Detroit does have the 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 there are still spaces, but they may not be the spaces that are, quote unquote, uh, what's packaged as 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 attractive. Being over here on Linwood and 12th Street, you you have to be a visionary of knowing what you want to do, uh, engaging with neighbors differently, you know, and I'm sure, you know, if I move to. You know, if I move to Woodbridge, it, it would be similar, but a little bit different. You know what I'm saying? Because it's more attractive. It's it's more of a of a known place to move to and live and things like that. Like it's it's yeah. nuances of moving in communities like this. And yes, it's like, do you where do you want to be? Right. And I think it, that's where, you know, you're speaking frankly about it. You're right. Woodbridge is whatever you want to call it. I don't want to I don't want to call it like a developing neighborhood, an up and coming neighborhood. But Whatever the word is to describe that it's getting investment. Yeah. Uh, new businesses are opening. People are going in. It goes back to the Corktown example. So, Kari, you are you have you sit in the unique seat for this. I'm mm-hmm. kind of sitting in a broad perspective, looking at this mm-hmm. from a city. You sit here in one of these places we're talking about. What do you think is the future? I mean, you don't want to leave. You you have no. roots here. Yeah. You could, like you just said, you could go move and mm-hmm. find a really nice house in the Livernois area uh, over mm-hmm. there or golf club. Like you could find one of these neighborhoods, Woodbridge, like you said, you could find one of these places and be like, no, I'm just going to start to trade as different and move it over here. And it's cooler because there's a coffee shop next door and there's a bar over here. You could do that, but I don't think you want to do it. No. So what is the future then? Do you have to double down and say, I want to make this one of those neighborhoods or do you do something totally different? I, I think... And this is where, like, I guess another person may say, well, damn, you sound like the person that's trying to change things. I think it's a it's a give and take. Like, I have more autonomy over here. If I were doing some of the things that, like, I could only imagine. If I were downtown doing some of this stuff, even you coming for this interview, I'm probably having to have you check in with different people. I'm not going to have the same freedoms. So I, I'm getting less considerations in exchange for certain freedoms, which causes for me to have to engage in community a lot different. So I have to engage with my neighbors a little bit more. So it's like, hey, if I know many people are coming, hey, park in my lot because I'm one of the few people with the driveway. It's, it's the west side, but it's a little east side with the with the I'm, I'm the one house with the driveway. So, you know, we take advantage. So like my, my neighbors, depending upon the arc of when I do things, I have to be more responsive, engage with them, interact with them a little bit more. Whereas I think if I were in a different neighborhood, I would have like a, a a neighborhood association that would speak whatever the rules are a whole lot more. So I could mm. like instead of having the direct contact with my neighbor, like, hey, these people parking in front of my crib. I just got off work. You know, uh, the lady across the street, she works for um, she's one of uh, she's a manager for a um, uh, what is that? 911 dispatch. Mm. So she works interesting hours sometimes, and I understand it. You know, so if I have guests that come to Detroit, it's different, and it's her parking space. I mean, technically, it ain't her parking space because it's still a street, but it's her parking space. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's front of our house. But that just happens to also be if three guests come, that's a good parking space for uh, one of my Detroit is different guests. So it's mindful of me to engage and have that relationship with my neighbor to be like, hey, check this out. Um, you know, we got to. 
you know, we we have to uh, work out something, park in my driveway and and engage a lot more. Whereas I'm sure if I was in if if I was in Woodbridge, where parking is very tough in Woodbridge, mm-hmm. if you live in one of those homes, it's damn near, you know, it's like New York sometimes. Yeah. Like, you know, just you move your you move, you know, go to the store, you'd be like, eh, I may want to walk three miles to go to uh the store because I don't want to lose my parking space. It you know, now I may have to deal with the neighborhood association and get a citation, and then that citation becomes like, um, y- you know, yeah. whoever I'm buying the land contract comes get comes from gets involved in it. Or the outdoor stuff you do. And, yes, I mean, I think the outdoor stuff you do here. I mean, most definitely, you can't it do would that. be very difficult do that, to do that in like a university district or something right. like that because it's a, it's a different class of quote unquote Detroiters. Whereas now, I think. Being in a community that's more grassroots, you have the advantage of actually engaging with your neighbors. You know, Mm -hmm. same thing with Daily Detroit, Jeremiah. Like, it's the same thing. Like, I was like, oh, man, we over here in the North End. This is Dolores Bennett's stomping ground. So if so, as he engages, he's doing more interaction with the people around him because it's it's uh, the onus becomes more on you. And Mm -hmm. if you be if if you're trying to be more exclusionary and an individual, um. I don't necessarily think that immediately moves to like people kicking in your door and stealing stuff, but it definitely, you know, it, you lack the community love that mm-hmm. I think you get from a community like this that I would get if I were in a um, Palmer Woods, a Sherwood Forest, a, a, a Indian Village, or a Grandmont Rosedale. And I'm not saying it's not love over there, but here it's completely different, you know. So that's a that's a tough thing. So then I guess. What I would kind of follow up with is and say is, so how would you feel if money started coming into this neighborhood? I would think uh, kind of like a lot of people felt just period with Detroit. As long as it's inclusive, like nothing's wrong with development, but just don't exclude the people that are here. So as long as inclu- is inclusive of what we do mm-hmm. and it honors the culture and the tradition of what does exist here, because it may not look like nothing to you. But it's some stuff that goes on over here that we love, you know, the Friends for Life uh, celebration annually and things like that. So if you displace something like that, it it impacts our quality of life. You know, it, it impacts what, what we love about it. It makes things feel different to us. We want to keep these traditions going because it's a part of the ethos and the culture of here. You're mm-hmm. you're you're coming to add what you add to the culture over here, not necessarily to look at what we got like obviously whatever they got don't matter at all we just gonna reshape everything we really want you to come here and be inclusive of what you have and then also not necessarily our way like it's very tough just this this balance of being in america of like what is value and what is valuable because detroit in a whole can be challenged on that because Mm -hmm. you know um you know what is valuable and, and, and what adds, and I do think social capital can play just as uh, pivotal a role as you know hard cash can. Uh, but it's tough because in most people's minds, hard cash is you know all that matters in America because mm-hmm. we've been conditioned to do that. But then you get enough hard cash, and then you turn around like a Phil Cooley, as you know. Last interaction I had with him. He's more so connecting with them. I mean, he still obviously is involved in business, but more of it are involved in more intrinsic values that he's connecting to. And then here's another developer over there. And I definitely know uh, Brian Malloy and what he does. Like he's always been intrinsically connected. Like that's been very purposeful in the work he does 
um, that I think, you know, it it, it it starts connecting because, you know, that that glass house uh, and you're so far away, you know, you pay enough money to get away from what you quote unquote want to escape. Mm-hmm. And then you're there by yourself in this solitude and you're like, damn, really what I miss is connecting with the people. Yeah. You know, and you connecting with people in my neighborhood all the time, even sometimes <laughs> when you don't want to. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, what you doing? You know what I'm saying? It's, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a guy over here that has uh, some chickens and roosters, and it's like, oh, wow. I know that ain't zoned for over here. You know what I'm saying? So then a, a rooster gets loose, and it's like, all right, look, man. <laughs> you know, rooster gets loose too early. You know what I'm saying? Now that's waking me up differently, but <laughs> it causes for a conversation. You know? Yeah. Putting my putting my this is my last question on to you, but putting my small business economic development hat yeah. on. Um, is there a certain type of business that that could really kind of be a catalyst for this neighborhood? Like if I gave Kari a million bucks and mm-hmm. was like, "You gotta, you gotta take this million bucks and you gotta open a business in your neighborhood," and it can't be Detroit is different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. is something there something? Is there something that would really spur you think? I I think so much of it, and uh, this is me. Shout out to uh, Yusef Shakur and Tawana Honeycomb Petty. Like the I used to think it'd be like something, but so much of it is the like value. You know, it could be any business. You know what I mean? We think of, um, you know, one business where I like their story. And I know it's packaged back to marketing. I don't know the inside outs of it or whatever. Um, But it was actually Sheila Cockrell that told me and it hit me to more the gang of, um, what is it, Ziedelman's? And um, from from Ann Arbor, but they also have stretched their footprint. Zingerman's? Zingerman's. The deli? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So it's a deli. You know what I'm saying? So nobody would think a deli could possibly move to the way that it's moved and what it's become. But it's just from the perspective of a deli. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, nobody would think that, like, you know what I'm saying, making sandwiches would end up becoming a possible gateway to, like, uh, community inclusive event uh, space. They do weddings and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it's like you know what I mean. Like no, nobody's thinking that. You mm-hmm. know, people. You know, in the in the inception. Mm-hmm. But it's the values as time grows and things go on, and that's why I think it's more so the values of who's ever at the helm. So if they're mm-hmm. like valued, great. But like I mean, when we, when I think of um, when I think of just the functionality of what would be empowering. Uh, what would be great uh, and it's great that they're in this footprint of uh, solidarity and what they're doing with solar power and empowering more people with information of what that looks like so that's that's like a functional thing um, I think obviously uh, when you know a neighborhood like this you know, different food options you know uh, as they always say and I guess healthy is relative but you know it, it is there there are many uh, there are there are way more places to get fried chicken in my neighborhood than there are to get a um, you know a kale salad. So mm-hmm. like maybe let's balance that a little bit more. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, and other than food, I, I think spaces and places that um, you know it, it's a lot of other creatives like me. So mm-hmm. I know I'm sounding. You said not Detroit is different, but not necessarily this model, but. Spaces where people can create, like creative labs to exist in in this and, and maybe find some equity in that. Like really changing some of this Detroit is different business model to more of a business model and not necessarily like a, you know, so much in social entrepreneurship and community, but really finding that balance and meeting people with their creative voice and 
and turn that on. And I think Daily Detroit is looking to to that too. But nobody's really like hit that. You know, you know what I'm saying. Nobody's yeah. hit that nail on the head per se. And mm. I really do think it's based on our passions and why we do it this way. But mm. I do know it's a business in that because there's some very talented, creative people around here. Yeah. You know, it's funny you talk about that. And I think it does come back to what you're talking about. It's not just one thing. It's a little bit of everything. And it's kind of allowing allowing a space to be a blank canvas for the people that that live there to, to kind of say what they want. And mm-hmm. I know it's kind of a very corporate example, but I think of the shipping Detroit Shipping Co., right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's and a cool spot. That's it's cool like spot. a little bit of everything. It's got it's got spaces for food entrepreneurs to mm-hmm. kind of test things out. I mean, that sounds like something that would be cool in terms of like allowing local chefs and local entrepreneurs to kind of share stuff out and kind of give people a taste of what they do outside of just their kitchen. It's got a little art gallery space. It's got a little pop-up stuff for retail. It's got a mm-hmm. podcast studio for creators, content the people. space. The event space. So that's the type of thing that's kind mm-hmm. of like we were talking about. If every if every neighborhood had one of these kind of spaces where it was just a little bit of everything and it had some co-working, it had a co-working element to it mm-hmm. um, so people could come and, and work and take meetings that seems to be like if we were to, if, if you and I were to sit down and yeah. kind of draw up what is this space, I think we're on the same page as far as that mm-hmm. type of space is what every neighborhood needs as kind of that catalyst. And then it grows out from there. If one of these food entrepreneurs gets really good, like your, you know, your uh, Max O'Hardy or your Coop, mm-hmm. then you get your own brick and mortar and then, then you get your own restaurant. Or if you're one of these uh, cafes that does like really good coffee or really good baked goods, you get your own brick and mortar. Or you're a co-working space, but you now become your own studio. Like to me, that's if I was designing how that works, that's how I think that's how I think it can happen. Is you start small, you just mash everybody up in the same place. And it's, this goes back to kind of the idea of neighborhood. You get a place where everyone's just gathering, sharing ideas, sharing food, sharing drinks, talking about stuff. And then from there, everyone gets to try a little bit of everyone's mm-hmm. proverbial plate. And then if you become successful, success means going out and doing it on your own. And now you have four restaurants that opened up because of this and two co-working spaces and a bar and a cafe. And you basically, it, it's kind of like planting the seeds and the, the, the pot, the pot and the soil and the seeds are that space we're talking about, this hub where it's co-working food. That's, that's powerful, which, which makes me flip as we get closer to a close on this. Um, the question I have for you in that case would be, because this is where what we do really kind of comes into play, too, in marketing and perspective and, condi- you know, I call it propaganda sometimes because it is that. <laughs> but but then at that point, will every business be racing to, like, look at the same goal as success? Will, like, how much have we been ingrained in this American model of success? And maybe not even the owner, but sometimes, like, it's the team around you to, like, is success always franchising? And, 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 and like... Is your goal always to go from, you know, Chick-fil-A 10 years ago to Chick-fil-A now, you know, or or can success be staying, you know, uh, here's another <laughs> Dearborn spot, you know, for and I thought they were closing. I think they're staying open. Millers. Can you can you mm. be Millers? You know, can you stay in that space? Because I'm sure over the years, as much as people's been there, like it's it's known for its burgers and stuff like that because they season the beef in a different way and they old pick school, the beef a different yeah. way. So. So if you get a burger from there, if you like burgers, check it out if you happen to be on that side of Michigan. And bring Ave. cash. Yeah, well, yeah, that too. Yes, cash have in. cash as well. It's real old school, you know what I'm saying? So, um, like, you know, how many people will, will choose the Chick-fil-A option 
over staying Miller. Like, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. success still can be Miller's. Yeah. You know, but you have to have the consciousness for that. So my question is, you know, how do you have that in America where everything is pointing you towards franchising and, you know. Yeah, you got I mean, you got to you got to have a vision. And so this is this is actually a very relevant question to me because I sit in both worlds where you talk about entrepreneurship and small business, entrepreneurship and small business. And like if that was a Venn diagram, entrepreneurship and small business overlap like a Venn diagram, two mm-hmm. circles. But but they don't just they're just not on top of each other. They are separate. There's elements to small business that are very small business. There's elements to entrepreneurship that are entrepreneurship. And I, the example obviously would be the difference between what we call a startup company mm-hmm. and a small business. And people are constantly confusing this. And I, I, I got to tell you, Kari, like I spend a lot of time talking to both people in both worlds. And I also spend a lot of time explaining to people the difference. When you're a startup, when you call yourself a startup and you're an, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a startup, you have several specific goals. You have to grow your business, sell your product and scale and take investment. The goal is always scale up, scale up, scale up. Because once you start taking on investors, venture capital or other capital, you know, you become an entrepreneur, this becomes a startup, you are beholden to those mm-hmm. investors. You gotta scale, you gotta do it quick, mm-hmm. you gotta grow, and it's just grow, 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 and take on levels of investment, and eventually, hey, either IPO or you get acquired. And that is the goal of every startup, is get acquired or IPO. There's not a single startup founder who's going to be successful, who doesn't have that goal in their mind, IPO or acquisition, because that's how you're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. If you're a small business, like you said, that path is different. That's not going to be your path. The path may be franchising. That's maybe the ultimate goal for a small business owner. Um, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just being successful and having a quality of life. And that goes back to the quality of life. So I think you have to sit down and say what your vision is. You really have to be honest with yourself, I think. And it takes a lot of self-reflection. Maybe it takes some meditation. Maybe you walk out into the woods somewhere and, you know, have have an epiphany. But it takes really digging down deep and saying, what is success? Is it me sitting in some mansion in Malibu and, you know, having, you know, $20 million because I IPO'd a startup company? Mm -hmm. If that's success, then you have to think about the type of business you're going to open. You're probably not going to open a burger spot and then end up there. Yeah. But is success having a a house uh, on the the Detroit Golf Club and being able to invite your friends over uh, and swim in your pool and, you know, stay stay local and stay in Detroit and have a successful business that, you know, you really enjoy and you wake up every morning and you love going there and you employ people from the neighborhood and, and and that's all good too and you live a perfectly fine quality of life, but you don't have... You know, the dream isn't to make millions of dollars. The small business owner, I think, the true small business owner wants to be successful in so much as they are comfortable in their life, they love what they do, and they create opportunities for jobs for for local people, and they kind of get kind they don't give back to the community, maybe maybe not explicitly, mm-hmm. but they give back to the community by being uh, a presence and being an anchor in that in that neighborhood. So that's a small business to me when I think of what that is. And you have to be honest with yourself if you're going down this path. Where am I? If you find yourself being a small business owner who wants to, you know, have a ten million dollar startup company, there's a there's a there, there's a disconnect there between yeah. your vision and what you're doing, and you're going to have to switch paths. And, and I think that's also where the onus of us in media, and this is where marketing and media kind of, as you say, intersect. Have to have to unpack it, and we have mm-hmm. to look at success and see like a Janet from Source Booksellers. And I was told a long time ago from my grandfather, uh, rest in peace, Don Scott, 
that like, you know, like when I evaluate the success of a business person, I don't just look at a person's money, actually. I look at how long you've been in business. Whatever business has been in business the longest, that to me is the most successful business. So it is the business that, you know, Brazelton Flower Shop that, you know what I'm saying, that is transitioned from father to son to now daughter in that transition. I look at that like that's success. I don't look at Elon Musk and say, well, he got all this money, so that's successful. And I'm not necessarily, you know, um, saying that 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 there's not success in, in that role of business either. But that also plays a role. And I think to me, that's how that that cuts against some of the gentrification because now it's just not an assumed idea that the minute that, I don't know who steps in, um, let's say, uh, I don't know who, uh, who like, a you know, Warren Buffett's like, wow, I like Detroit. So I want to buy half the West side and just start putting up stuff everywhere. You know, we can't just capitulate to him because the, the marketing and the branding is he has a lot of money. So he's a great business person. We need to look at Janet with the source booksellers and say, well, Janet has embraced embraced this community for so for decades. So that has a social capital that we can evaluate with a cost that equals Warren Buffett's wealth, which I know a lot of people would look at me and say I'm crazy for saying something like this, but that's how I think we really holistically connect in community and then find that intersect because a lot of the entrepreneurs and small business owners still look at and kind of I think submit ourselves that this person is a better at business and this is the grand goal in business when in reality like you said the quality of life may be better at quote unquote scaling back as they would say or just staying put and being where you're at yeah we talked about some of those people and I mean some of my favorites that I've uh, had recently you think of Godwin at Yum Village oh yeah Godwin is is successful by any measure of mm-hmm. that, and maybe he's happier than the startup entrepreneur tech mm-hmm. person who's raising forty million dollar round who has to like lose sleep and you know beholden to investors. I'd 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 uh, I'd argue Godwin is probably much happier, and he wakes up every day a lot happier about what he does, even though he puts in long hours. He's a lot happier about what he does, um, and he is you know, undeniably successful. And maybe for Godwin, success means just a second location or a catering, you know, having a catering arm, maybe that's success. And that would be everything. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, we think smaller, like Q from, you know, Q's Kitchen, I'm thinking on Woodward. She's, you know, incredibly successful in her own way. And I think, you know, that's just as successful as a multimillionaire uh, entrepreneur. And, And that's the, and that's how we have to embrace this as a community too. We can't all just slowly say this person has more money, so they're more successful, which I think in business is it's relative because the tough thing about being that startup chasing capital investment and venture capital and all that stuff, you lose. And this is one of my biggest critiques about sometimes those aggressive businesses. You lose care and concern about the end user in the long run because mm-hmm. you're more concerned about the investor yeah. than the end user. Right. And whereas a small business owner, I think you 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 have an intimate relationship with the end user. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If these fries are bad, you're going to hear about the fries. Mm-hmm. If you have, if, if I have a, a a restaurant like that, I'm less concerned about the fries being good, and I'm more concerned about this investor keeping their money in our stock. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah. hey, find some cheaper fries so they can get a better margin <laughs> exactly. on their return. Absolutely. You know That's what it. I'm saying? Hence, like, no offense to Chick Fil A, but you know, obviously, as they've expanded so much, they've had to outsource 
the resources they get, you know, because exponentially that investment changes the product, you know, whereas when you got one or two restaurants and then you move to thousands, you know, which I think McDonald's really wrote a lot of that playbook. But, you know, it's going to have an impact on the quality of what can be delivered. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, Kari, I mean, we're, we're of the same generation. Biggie said it in 96, more money, more problems. You got that right. Seriously. I mean, yeah. no, no joke, because like you said, I think people glamorize the startup, the startup life, you know, the startup grind of being, you know, uh, you know whatever it is, a tech, a high, a high growth, a high growth industry entrepreneur. Man, I talk to a lot of them. It's a tough life, man. It's really tough, especially when you start taking on money at the, you know, at the 5 million, 10 million tens of million dollar level, like you said, you no longer own your company anymore. It's really just about beholden to investors, shareholders. Yeah. I have to do what they want. I lose. And you see these tech people, the the Zuckerbergs, the whoever's, you know, you think you think Elon Musk is, you know, uh, you know, the the cream of the crop and like he answers to no one. That's not true. He There's a board. to so many people. And then, and not only, you, he's answering to the people that were investors from the beginning too. Like right. it's not like a, it's not like a, 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 you know, you get out yeah. of bed and, and all of that. It's, it's not as much of an arm's length transaction as it is when you're that small business owner. I made you a sandwich. You like the sandwich. You're happy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like this investment has goals down the line because if it starts looking shaky or I think that this is a better way the money should move, it changes the, the dynamics of everything. Yeah. I think so. I, I definitely agree. I mean, think about the Apple. They free, they threw Steve Jobs off. They kicked Steve Jobs out of the company back in yeah. the back in the nineties because yeah. they're like, you know what? We don't care if you founded it. You're not making us money. You're out of here. Yes. Yes. Uh, anyone can lose their. You know, when you're a founder, mm-hmm. you know people think Elon Musk doesn't have bosses. He's got bosses, and he, he can me. be he can be fired. And it's not the end user. That's the right, that's the right. tough thing. It's not just I love still... my Tesla, so yeah, it yeah, doesn't matter. Yeah, because yeah, like as. That that's the weird thing about it. As much as we honor the the entre- as much as we honor the billionaire, you know, even going back to like Howard Hughes, we still don't understand who they're beholden to, mm-hmm. because we still engage in business and think the end user is the most important person. So mm-hmm. like if if somebody in Tesla says, "Hey, guess what? We need to shift from electric to something different." If all signs point to that in the in the investment, guess what? You no longer care about who's buying that car. You gonna follow what the board says mm-hmm. because the board money, puts yeah. the money yeah. in this in this machine. You know, we're we're we, you know, and they're making yeah, you're you're on phone calls and and all of this. Like it's not, uh, um, yeah, like you say, it's, it's not it's not it's as more pressure as, as people think. It's, it's really more pressure. not. And then you're also dealing with the egos of a person that gives writes you a check for like a venture capitalist. Like you know, the person that. First off, just due to how our society is set up, the type of person that can write you a $10 million check has a $10 million check writing ego, too. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you could just say, hey, man, you know, some things changed around. We just need a little bit more time. What you mean some things changed around? I want my lawyers to talk to your lawyers. I want my accountants to talk to your accountants. I want my PR people to talk to your PR people. I want my, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where you like, God damn, you know what I'm saying? It's like, can you trust anything? No, I don't trust nothing because I gave you $10 million. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? And furthermore, before you get this $10 million, we're going to track every asset that that goes connected to this money. You know what I'm saying? Hence, it's like golden handcuffs sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So classic Detroit is different questions. Now we here. Um, very first car, year making model. 
very first car was a 2003 gray Focus. I, you want to say it was it? It looked gray, but it was called Platinum, and that's why I wanted. Okay, it. okay, that's what's up. Where was the Focus. first place you went when you got it? Ooh, good question. Where did I go? I think I went to. Uh, Oh, open gym at Joe Dumars Fieldhouse. Oh man, the Joe D days. <laughs> yeah, those were some. I went to open those gym were some Dumas competitive. Fieldhouse. Those were some p- competitive basketball games. It I really like was. I mean, more, look, I'm not going to yeah, pretend that was a like competitive I, basketball. I wasn't game. running the quarter or anything, but like my <laughs> friends were going up there. I was like, hey, I don't have to hitch a ride with my friends or my uh, dad anymore. Mm-hmm. I can drive myself. So that was fun. Yeah, if you could, let's put it like this. I was on a good run of a team. That's what. That's the thing. If you could hold court on Joe Dumars, I would say. Four games. You that was a <laughs> that was solid. Yeah, and then four you, games. And then you wait two hours to get in. Get in the next. Round. Yeah, exactly. You'd have to be phenomenal for them to be because most people usually brought their own team. Right. You would have to be so much better than the other person that rode in the car with them mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to be like, you gonna sit this one out? We picking up my man. Right. Right. <laughs> All right, that's a, that's so that's so Detroit right there. <laughs> you went to Joe D yeah. on your first run. <laughs> I, was a big, a, I was a big basketball player. That's, cool, that's a cool spot to hit. Yeah, you are a hooper, <laughs> hooping at heart. <laughs> um, you're the DJ at the end of the fireworks. You get to play a song. Woodward Jefferson, what song are you playing? At the end of the fireworks. Oh man, I mentioned it. I I mean, again, it's it's my it's my age, but. Mo money, mo problems. That 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 song got okay. me into like hip hop. I remember going to Borders. I'm dropping some. I remember <laughs> going to Borders on Ford Road in Dearborn, and that was like the first CD. And I think I had to get my mom to like buy it for me. It probably, and I had to like convince her, like, yeah. look, like Puff Daddy, like he doesn't seem yeah. very like you know. You can get this for me. So that was like the first single I got. I think was Mo Money, Mo Problems, and all about okay. the Benjamins was the other side of this. The, or the other okay. track in the CD, I would have to play that because it got me into everything. I think mm-hmm. there's a true message there, as much as like glitz and glam and mm-hmm. puffy was all about. Kind of, we're building. We talk about we're mm-hmm. building up this empire, bad boy records empire. Um, at the end of the day, it had a really, it had a really important message. I think that after all of this, it still means more problems, more yeah. more crap you're gonna have to deal with, even yeah. though you're becoming successful. On that point, I like I tell people all the time, and then I, I know I'm speaking as if like, well, you have it. Because definitely when you when you don't have money in America, it, it it's it, it's going to impact your or with less money, it's going to impact your quality of life immensely. But cash itself is a very fast depreciating asset. You know, and then the more money you have, it really becomes an asset and tool for business. So like it's like, okay, family money, family money, and then it hits like a a a a pivot where now it becomes like a business asset. But it's a fast appreciating asset. Uh networks, connections, resources, which um access to where you buy the best resources, all of this is so much more exponentially valuable than money because the person with money is gonna Always hand that over. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. When you are that restaurant owner and you've just opened up 15 locations in Chicago and you're like, wow, man, the fish here sucks. <laughs> the people that you connect to. Now you need that person that knows where to buy the fish, how often it comes, the logistics of getting it traveled to you, all of that stuff. Who can cook it, how to refrigerate it, how to set things up. Like now it is as cash is a fast appreciating asset, you know. 
Absolutely. So, it, you know, all, we've definitely gone over some economic terms. So, if you, <laughs> like in mo- a lot of Detroit's different interviews, take take notes in this one, figure that out. Last one. If you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? My favorite Detroit historical figure is Hazen Pingree. Hmm. And he's already sitting on Woodward, so mm-hmm. it'd be easy to rename it uh, Pingree. Because Hazen Pingree, for those who, who don't know much about the history, was truly, they, they literally called him the man of the people. Mm-hmm. The man of the people. He was, uh, he was against kind of all big business, big, big banks, big finance. He wanted uh, truly an equitable city um, that was kind of governed by the people. And he was an entrepreneur himself, shoe, uh, shoe shop. He was a successful uh, shoe sale, not shoe salesman, but he owned the shoe shop. Um, so he's a s- successful entrepreneur in his own right. They called him Potato Patch Pinbury because when, when times got rough, he, he wanted to invest in, uh, in the city and, and help Detroiters grow their own food, grow their own yeah. potatoes. You know, times are hard. We can grow our own food. We can produce stuff here in Detroit. Um, and so I just really appreciate kind of like his values. He was kind of a real founding father of the city. He tried to be the mayor and the governor at the same time. And they said, no, Hazen, you can't do that. Um, so he went with the is, governor. That is an entrepreneur. <laughs> he That's... wanted to be both. So Hazen Pengree has always been someone uh, kind of I've, I've admired as kind of a man of the people uh, for Detroit. I like it. And that definitely is entrepreneurship. I'm always looking to color outside the lines. I'm, I'm always talking to my attorney. Shout out Stephanie Hammonds. Like, hey, make it happen. It got to be a way to. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. And it's like, don't tell me what can't happen. Can't is not. Tell me how you can make it happen. There you go. You know, so definitely. Peace be. Check this out. Great interview. I was I was so so good to talk to you, Kari. I love doing the uh, the long the long form podcasts mm-hmm. and talking about all sorts of stuff. Um, so much cool stuff going on in Detroit. Just mm-hmm. get out there, explore. I always tell people, don't go to any chains. We just talked about it. If I could leave people with one message, it's try the place next door. If you're gonna go to McDonald's, if you're gonna go to you know uh, Popeyes, try the place next door th- mm-hmm. that you don't know and give them a chance instead. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely helps the ecosystem. A whole lot more. Absolutely. Money stays in the community. Mm-hmm. All right. Peace. Detroit is different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.